Well, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 through 11. This morning, we will be considering a number of passages, but the reason we are reading this passage right now is because this is arguably the most foundational passage that we will be considering this morning as it relates to why we baptize infants. Again, this is God coming to Abraham uh, in the context of the Abrahamic covenant. So Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 through 11. This is picking up uh, with God's um, words and, and speech to to Father Abraham, and we read, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts again this morning. Well, please turn with me in your order of worship to the confessional reading element. This morning, we are confessing together from Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 27, question and answer 74. Last week, we looked at the first two question and answers of this Lord's Day, and now this week, we are considering the last question and answer in this Lord's Day. As a reminder, the the catechism was broken up into various Lord's Days in order for the church to be able to get through the catechism in a sequential uh, manner in, in the space of one year. And so uh, we might not make it in one year, but we're, we're, uh, we'll do so in, um, in not, that much, uh, not that many weeks afterwards. So Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 27, question answer 74. Questions, uh, I will read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answers. Question 74 asks, should infants also be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. And they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. 
Well, boys and girls, uh, you know that there are three sections in this catechism. Uh, which section are we currently considering? Yes. Grace. Grace, yes. And in this grace section, we've been focusing especially on faith. Faith is very important. Um, in Scripture, it's a very important part of the Christian life. And so, uh, what is true faith? What are the elements of true faith? Violet? Knowledge, assent, and trust. And what is the content of this faith? Isaiah? The Apostles' Creed. Very good. Now, what is the benefit of faith? So if we profess true faith, what, what benefit is it? Annabelle? Christ's righteousness, yes. Uh, we receive this imputed righteousness from Christ so that we can be a part of God's family and be accepted by Him. Now, where does this faith come from? Yes? The preaching of the Word. The preaching of the Word. And how is this faith confirmed? Isaiah? Oh, sorry, uh, Marcus. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit. Anything else? Lily? The sacraments. Good. So the Holy Spirit uses preaching and the sacraments to uh, create and then nurture faith, to strengthen our faith. Now, baptism or sacraments don't, don't create the faith, but they nurture the faith. And how many sacraments are there? Uh, Ezekiel. Two. Very good. Baptism, Lord's Supper. All right, so we are currently considering uh, baptism as one of the means that the Lord uses to strengthen and confirm our faith. So again, notice in the catechism how, how important faith is. Uh, we've looked at what is true faith, what is the content of faith, what is the benefit of faith, where does faith come from, how is faith created and then matured in, in, in this life. And so boys and girls, one of the reasons why church is so important is because the things that we do in church are the means that the Holy Spirit uses to, to grow our faith, to mature our faith. Uh, and this is why it's so important, um, not only now, but as you continue to get older, to, to remain committed to the local church. That's how God grows your faith, through the preaching of the gospel and through the sacraments. Well, last week we considered uh, in a kind of introduction to this topic of, of infant baptism. And we looked particularly about uh, regarding this idea that we don't baptize babies because we think that it saves them. Uh, salvation is not one of the reasons uh, for our baptism of babies. We don't think that the, the waters of baptism are magical. We're not superstitious. But we saw, particularly in question answer 74, that God really cares about our instruction and our assurance. And so, in the context of an infant baptism... This child, as we witnessed this morning with Margot Margo and, and, and Maddie, these children are baptized into the Christian faith. And thus, we as a church, and we as a church took a vow, did we not, that we would be committed to raising these children in this Christian faith. And so, Lord willing, when these children will one day profess their faith, that's a wonderful moment because these children then are responding to the gospel made visible. visible. They're responding to the promises that were signified to them in their baptism. They are affirming the faith that they were baptized into. And so you see things coming full circle then 
when youth profess their faith. They are grabbing hold of that Christian faith that was signified and sealed to them in their baptism. Well, question answer 74 then is, is giving us the biblical foundation for why infants are the proper subjects of baptism. And this argument that we will consider this morning is a threefold argument. Uh, so boys and girls, you, you may have seen, you may have in your house a stool that has three legs on it. Now what would happen if you took off one of those, those legs? Would it hold you? No, it would topple right over. Right? You need, if it's a three-legged stool, you need every single one of those legs if that stool is going to sit right. And so this, this, uh, this Lord's Day, this question and answer, gives us three arguments, three reasons for why we should baptize babies. And these three arguments are all very, very important. And the order in which we, we consider them are also very important. So the first, uh, I guess the first reason for why we baptize babies is not directly found here in question answer 74, but is a point that we've been reflecting upon the last few weeks. And again, that point is regarding the sacraments in general or baptism in general. That question that I've been asking you guys the last uh, two to three weeks, who is the doer in the sacraments? Who is the actor in the sacraments? I use the analogy of a playing field. If you go to a sports game, a Seahawks game, a Mariners game, even a high school game, if you go to that game as a fan, you go there and you sort of forget about yourself. And the goal of, of that experience is to get wrapped up in the game and to enjoy the talent and skill and hard work of those players. But now let's say you go to the, a sports game, but you're a player. You're going to that game with a radically different mindset. You are thinking about yourself. And you are cognizant that there are lots of people who have come out for this game to watch you perform. So going to a, a sports game as a fan, going to a sports game as a player, radically different experience. And so if baptism is a playing field, are we the fans or are we the players? Is baptism a time for us uh, to showcase our love, our zeal, our piety to God? Is God in, you know, in the bleachers giving us the golf clap, applauding our, our sincerity? Or are we the fans? And is baptism an opportunity for God to demonstrate his covenantal love and, and, and faithfulness for us and our children? Well, I made the argument that it's the latter. God is the player when it comes to the playing field of baptism. God is the doer. And he seeks to assure us of who he is for us. And so if you recall back to our consideration of what are the sacraments in the catechism, the sacraments are visible holy signs and seals appointed by God uh, to assure us of the gospel. The sacraments are an opportunity for God to assure us. And the biblical foundation for this, as we've been reflecting upon this the last several weeks, is found in Romans 4.11. Paul tells us that Abraham received the sign and seal of circumcision. And this sign and seal of circumcision was a sign and seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. So notice, was circumcision a, 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 circumcision a sign and seal of Abraham's faith? Or was it a sign and seal of gospel righteousness? Well, Paul tells us that it was a sign and seal of gospel righteousness of the righteousness of Christ that Abraham received ahead of time. 
And so the sacraments are a sign and seal of the gospel. And in the gospel, are we the doer? No, God is the one who did the gospel. We don't do the gospel. God is the one who did the gospel. And it's something that we are called to respond to by faith. And so, again, this point that I've been hitting the last several weeks is so, so important. Who is the doer when it comes to the sacraments? God is the doer. Baptism is God's playing field. And if you take nothing else away from our consideration of the sacraments during this section of of the catechism, this would be a point to take away. God is the doer when it comes to the sacraments and particularly baptism. All right, so that's the first point. That's the first leg in this, on this stool, as it were. Now, the second leg on this stool of, of infant or pedo-baptism relates to this question. Are children members of the church and covenant of God? Are children members of the church and covenant of God? Now, this is a very, very foundational issue, if not the most foundational issue when it, as it relates to this, this topic. The reason why it's so foundational is because the way in which you answer this question will necessarily make you either a Baptist or a Pado-Baptist. Are children members of God's church and covenant? How you answer this question will necessarily make you a Baptist or a Pado-Baptist. I love how the catechism here begins with this issue. It begins with talking about how children are members of God's covenant and people. A lot of times when it comes to infant baptism, we immediately start thinking about who in Scripture do we see being baptized. Now, that's not a bad topic to consider, a bad issue to consider, but it shouldn't be the first issue we consider we need to consider, first of all, who makes up God's covenant? Who makes up the church of God? Are children members of God's church and covenant? And so I'd like to just do a brief overview of of what we see in Scripture regarding uh, the, the status of children in God's covenant and people. And so we read just a few moments ago from Genesis 17. So notice how in Genesis 17, God's coming to Father Abraham and is saying, I... And making a covenant with you. I promise uh, to be a God to you and to your children for an everlasting covenant. And so God's telling Abraham that he's establishing an everlasting covenant with him. And this covenant includes both adults and children. I will be a God to you and to your children. Now, The new covenant very much is a continuation of the Abrahamic covenant. So whenever you're reading the New Testament and the works of the apostles, whenever the apostles are wanting to to draw um, areas of discontinuity between the New Testament and the Old Testament, they always go to Moses. When you compare Moses to the new covenant, there's stark contrast. In fact, The New Testament says that if you as a New Covenant Christian seek to return to Moses, you are cutting yourself off from Christ. However, whenever the New Testament is wanting to draw areas of continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it always goes to Abraham. Abraham is the paradigm for the New Covenant Christian. In fact, we read in the New Testament, if we want to return to Abraham and look to him for guidance, We're being a wise individual. Abraham is the father of all believers. 
And so notice that here in Genesis 17, God is establishing an everlasting covenant. And in this everlasting covenant, God is including both adults and children. And as you continue to read on in the Old Testament, what you see is that children are treated as members of God's covenant. In Deuteronomy 6, we learn that they are catechized and instructed as members of God's people. They are taught the Christian faith. We come across a number of prophecies in the prophets. And, you know, when the prophets are speaking about this coming messianic age, the Old Testament believers knew that they were awaiting this Messiah, the seed of the woman that was promised to Adam back in Genesis chapter 3.15. The prophets, oftentimes when they speak about this coming messianic age, these prophets speak that during this age, blessings will continue to come to children. One of the ways in which an Old Testament believer will know that the Messiah has come and the Messianic age has started is if blessings continue to come to children. That's one of the marks and features of this coming age. And so, if you are an Old Testament Jew, right before the coming of Christ, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, what, what is life going to be like when the Messiah comes? you would automatically think that God will continue to include children in his people and covenant. One, because God has always done this ever since he established this covenant with Abraham. And two, the prophets have told us that God will continue to bless children when the Messiah comes. And so again, if we're reading our Bibles in a chronological fashion, and we come to the New Testament, the Gospels, I should say, what do we see? Well, think about that, that episode and we see in Mark 10 and Luke chapter 18 where Jesus is blessing these little children. And, and the word for children here is literally infants. So Jesus is blessing infants and the disciples are rebuking these parents. The disciples are saying to these parents, well, what are you doing? This is a renowned, learned rabbi. He doesn't have time to bless these little infants. Stop distracting him. And Jesus then, in response, rebukes his disciples. And he says, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Now some uh, individuals, especially the, the Baptists, will, will say here, in light of this passage, that Jesus is, is referring to children as a metaphor of saving faith. We need to enter the kingdom like a little child. Now, that may be true, but that wouldn't be the, the primary natural reading of Jesus' words. If you were there in the historical context and you saw this taking place, disciples are, are trying to tell these parents to get away from Jesus, and Jesus is rebuking his disciples and says, for such belongs the kingdom of God, how would you understand those words? Well, you'd understand those words as Jesus saying, I have time for these infants because they are members of my kingdom. That is the, the natural primary reading of, of those texts. Well, Pentecost comes up. Jesus ascends into heaven, pours out his spirit in Acts chapter 2. And Peter, on this day of Pentecost, is preaching. And towards the end of this sermon, he says, repent and uh, be baptized. And he says, for the promise is for you 
and your children and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now again, he's speaking here primarily to Jews. And if you were hearing Jesus' words, or Peter's words, excuse me, here, and he, he's saying the promise is for you and for your children, what would you be thinking? You'd be thinking God is continuing this paradigm of including children in the community of faith. The promise, not just the promise of Joel 2 that the Spirit would come, but the Abrahamic promise, I will be a God to you and to your children, is being repeated as the new covenant is beginning. Or 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is addressing the issue of mixed marriage, or mixed marriages. And mixed marriages were a, pr- a pretty big issue in, in, in the early church because as the gospel is going to Gentiles, you'd have this situation in which one spouse would believe while the other would remain a pagan. And the believing spouse would be quite concerned about the status of their children. I'm a Christian, my spouse, my husband or wife is still a, a pagan. What does this mean ab- about our children? Are our children unclean, unholy, cursed because of the unbelieving spouse? And Paul says, be assured, your children are holy because of the faith of, 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 of at least one parent. Holy. Now what does this idea of holy uh, denote? Well, it, it means set apart or distinct. There's something categorically different about a child who's raised in the covenant community than a child who's raised in a pagan home. One has the privilege of hearing the gospel from the youngest of ages, of being catechized and instructed in the Christian faith, and the other one doesn't. This is what Paul means when he says that children of one or more believers are holy. They're set apart from Uh, pagan children who are raised apart from the Lord's means of the preaching of the gospel and the sacraments. Well, Paul's epistles. Paul repeatedly, in a number of his epistles, addresses children. Now, this would have been extremely counter-cultural in Paul's day. No one in the Greco-Roman world would address children in a public setting let alone girls. This would have been very, very countercultural. But Paul repeatedly addresses children in his epistles and treats them as much as members of the congregation, as husbands and wives, as, as parents and slaves and masters. And in one of these instances, in Ephesians 6.1, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now that phrase, in the Lord, is covenantal language. It refers to this idea of belonging to God's people, to God's covenant. These children are in the Lord. One of Paul's motivations that he gives to children to obey their parents is that they belong to God's people. Obey your parents in the Lord. Remember who you are. You belong. You belong to God's family. You belong to God's covenant. And therefore, God is calling you to obey your parents. So when you step back and ask yourself, again, 
returning to that original question. Are children members of God's covenant and people? Based on this biblical evidence, I think we have to say yes. God included children in his covenant in the Old Testament, and God continues to include children in his covenant in the New Testament. And so really the onus is upon the Baptist position to show where in Scripture has God discontinued this pattern of including children in his covenant? Where has God discontinued this pattern of including children in his covenant? The reason why I said how you answer this question will necessarily make you a Baptist or a Pado-Baptist is because everybody is agreed that if you are a member of God's covenant, if you're a member of the church, you should receive the sign of inclusion into God's covenant, which is baptism. So that's why this really is the issue behind the issue. Because if you agree that children are members of the church, are members of God's covenant, then then it's only natural to say that they should receive the sign of inclusion into God's covenant. So this really is the foundational issue. Children are members of God's covenant and of his people. And that's why I love question answer 74. The question answer 74 begins in this way. Notice what we read at the very beginning of, of this, this question and answer. Are infants, should infants also be baptized? Yes. Infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. This is where we need to start. After we we look at the sacraments in general, we need to begin with this consideration of the status of children in Scripture. And we see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God includes them in his covenant and in his church. Well, the third leg of this stool of infant baptism is who then should receive the sign of inclusion into God's covenant or who should receive the sign of church membership. And again, how you answer those first two issues will answer this issue for you. So if, if you say that God's sacraments are, or the sacraments are primarily our playing field, <laughs> an opportunity for us to showcase our faith. If you say that children are no longer part of God's covenant and people in the new, 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 uh, new covenant, then, then you will answer this third issue by saying, no, infants should not receive the sign of inclusion into the church. You need repentance and you need faith before one is to be baptized. But if you recognize that the sacraments are God's playing field, if you recognize that children are members of God's covenant, then it's only natural to see that they should receive the sign of inclusion into God's covenant. And so again, remember Genesis 17, that very foundational passage. God says that he is a God to both uh, Abraham and his children. Abraham receives a believer's circumcision, but then he circumcises both of his sons before they profess faith, Ishmael and Isaac, and calls them implicitly to respond to their circumcision with faith and repentance and obedience. You'll notice that question answer 74 tells us that baptism replaces circumcision. And we see that particularly in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, where Paul speaks about circumcision and baptism as synonyms. 
and that they both point us to Christ and Him crucified. Circumcision and baptism are synonyms in that they both point to Christ. Circumcision was a sign of inclusion into the people of God. And baptism is a sign of inclusion into the people of God. As Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, that we are baptized into the body of Christ. Therefore, we see that baptism replaces circumcision as a sign of inclusion into the church. This is then why in the book of Acts, we see a number of household baptisms. Now, in these household baptisms, we witness the head of the household repenting and believing, and then both he or she and their household are baptized. Now, oftentimes when these household baptisms are discussed in relation to infant baptism, the discussion very quickly turns into, well, how do we know if there was an infant in that baptism? Do we have any evidence that there's an infant in in these households? That's not really that important of a point. What's important is that we see the continuation of this household formula. And this formula is the same formula that was used in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, as we see with Abraham, Abraham believes and then he and his children receive the sign of God's covenant. And Luke seems to, in a very intentional manner, continue this same formula. The head of a household believes and both he or she and their household are baptized or receive the sign of the covenant. And so even if there wasn't an infant in any of these households, it really doesn't matter because we know that if there would have been, they would have been baptized because of what we know about this formula. The main issue is is the continuation of the household formula that we see in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament. And thus, we see that God continues to give the sign of baptism or the sign of inclusion to God's covenant, which in the new covenant is baptism to children, to infants. Now, one way I like to think about this, because some people ask, well, what's actually going on then in an infant baptism? And notice in our question and answer, it says that therefore by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. Catechism tells us that one of the main, main things that, are, that one of the main things that is happening in an infant baptism is that we are recognizing this distinction between a covenant child and a pagan child. So imagine, think of a child's soul as a fire pit, and think of the means of grace as, or think of catechesis, so instruction in God's word as kindling and firewood, and think of the Holy Spirit who creates faith as the spark. Now, what we're recognizing in baptism, what we're committing to as a church in infant baptism, is we're committing to lay a lot of kindling, a lot of firewood upon the fire pit of this child's soul. We're not claiming that the waters of baptism is igniting the spark of faith. We're just saying that we as a church have the responsibility to lay a huge pile of kindling and firewood upon the soul of this child. And we pray with hopeful expectation, not with presumption, but hopeful expectation that in due time that the Spirit will create faith in the heart of this child, will ignite that kindling and that firewood. 
Now think about a pagan child. A pagan child still has a fire pit of, of his or her soul, but that pagan child doesn't have any kindling, any firewood laid upon their fire pit. It's just a bare dirt floor. But a covenant child has all this kindling, all this firewood that's just ready to go up in flames when the Holy Spirit decides to give the spark of faith. And this is what the catechism is drawing our attention to. We're recognizing the status of covenant children in God's people. And so, these three arguments are so foundational when it comes to this issue of why we baptize babies. We first need to have the right understanding of the sacraments in general. God is the doer in the sacraments. God is the doer in baptism. The baptisms we witnessed earlier today were not primarily about Madeline or Margot. These baptisms were about God and his promises to us. The second issue you need to consider is children's status in God's covenant. Are they members or aren't they? And then the third issue is should infants receive the sign of inclusion into God's covenant in people? Now you may have heard of, of what's called a memory palace. There's this idea today that one way you can remember ideas is by thinking of an image in your head and linking those abstract ideas to those certain images. And so you kind of walk through your home or a space that you can imagine in your head to help you remember um, a list or, or other things. And so I'm going to give you a memory palace this morning. So imagine you're going to a sports game, a Seahawks game, a Mariners game. And you walk into the stadium. I don't know about you, but when I go to a, 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 a you know, professional sports game, one of the first things I do when I walk in the stadium is I look at the field. Your, your attention is just draw, drawn to the field. And you see the players warming up, beginning to, um, uh, to practice their, their particular sport. And that should link us to this, that, that first argument. That when it comes to the sacraments, we are the fans and God is the player. Just like when you come to the sports game, you come as fans, not as the player. Now let's say you find your seat. Where does your attention then go? Well, you probably look at the field and then you look at, at all the bleachers around you and you see how these seats are quickly filling up with many other fans. And you ask yourself, who are these people? Well, there's not just adults here, but there's families here. There are even infants here. And so that should link us to that second point, that children are members of the church. When you look around on a Sunday, you don't just see adults here. You see youth here. You see toddlers here. You see infants here. And therefore, children are members of God's covenant and of his church. And as you're sitting there in your seat, uh, you know, your, little, uh, your son, your daughter leans over to you and, and says, Mommy or Daddy, does everybody have a ticket like we do? And you, 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 you respond to, to him or her and say, yes, everyone here has a ticket, just like you have a ticket, just like I have a ticket. And this should then link us to that third point, that everyone who is a member of the church receives the sign of inclusion into the church, which is baptism. And so, should infants be baptized? Yes. Yes, they should be baptized. And we have good biblical reasons for for this and, and 
the argument that I presented, I think, is a helpful way for us to think through this, uh, this question. And this is part of the reason why I love question answer 74. It lays out the issue so wonderfully and so logically. It begins with that idea of, of church membership and then proceeds to the sign of the covenant. Well, with this question and answer, we conclude our consideration of baptism. In the subsequent weeks, then, we will turn our attention to our understanding of the Lord's Supper, which also is uh, God's means of grace to nourish and strengthen our faith.